one thing that I realize that you need is grit and persistence. So you really need to keep going through and around every obstacle that comes to your way. And you have to realize that you're going to get knocked down no matter how great and fabulous you are. Sometimes you're going to fail and you need to pick yourself back up and keep going. And you might not realize how critical that is to your survival. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today, I'm here with Candace Hughes, the CEO and founder of Hughes Biopharma Advisors, who's an award-winning serial entrepreneur. Candace, congratulations. You are killing it. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. It's great to be here. I'd love to hear all about your your entire career path, but I wanted you to start by telling us what you do uh, at Hughes Biopharma. Sure. So Hughes Biopharma is a company that focuses on boutique consulting specifically for the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. And I founded the company in 2005 and I had already had extensive experience in those industries. So I was able to use that experience to be able to help my clients in areas like regulatory, helping them to get new products approved, and also helping understand the market, looking at uh, maybe what market is a good one to slot for a new product that they're developing and to help with innovation, because that's really my my deep first love is in innovating and getting better technologies out to patients so that they can lead healthier lives. And you have a PhD in anatomy and neurobiology, right? Yes. <laughs> that sounds scary to a non-science brain like me. What drew you to those areas? And could you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to focus on anatomy and neurobiology? Sure. So I think the main reason that I got so excited about studying neuroscience was because the brain is sort of the final frontier in terms of biology. It's what controls our day-to-day activity, how we think, and it's sort of the root of who we are as people. And so I just thought that that was really such a fantastic mystery that I wanted to spend as much time as I could focusing on uncovering those mysteries and and better understanding how we work as people. And so I decided that the best way to do that was to go to the Boston University School of Medicine and get my PhD so they could stuff all that knowledge into my head uh, and then be able to apply that out to research and to people. So some of the research that I did focused on Alzheimer's disease, vision, and epilepsy. I picked those areas and the brain focus because I wanted to be able to apply the research back to people. So for me, everything kept leading back to how can I improve people's health and help them to lead better lives through my research. I went into biology to begin with because that, again, is the science of life. And it just was something that was really 
and excited me from back in the fourth grade when one of my teachers gave me a seashell was a fossil over 100 million years old and i just started on that path of saying oh my gosh this is what life is about and we can watch it evolve and change and so that's that's why i just kind of delved into all those different uh topics and there's a lot of talk about how to get more girls and women in STEM fields. Now, when you decided to go into neurobiology and neuroscience, were you daunted at all by the fact that there weren't a lot of women in the field? When I started in my younger years, I didn't really see a lot of gender-based issues when I was in you know, elementary or even into high school. My teachers were encouraging. My family was very encouraging. Uh, although in later my later college high school years, my mother was a little bit kind of put back, saying, "Oh, this is a bit nerdy. You know, do you do you need to study science?" But I I found uh, you know once I got into the more advanced stages, that's when that uh, issue started to come up. And what kinds of issues did you experience? So I think some of the things were related to a little bit uh, less encouraging. So there's a bit of a thread of, well, math is hard for girls. That definitely came up for me a few times. Although, to be fair to the people that are math whizzes, um, biology is less math than other fields. But that is still something that got raised a few times. And then the other thing that would come up when I was in uh, graduate school and past that is I noticed first that there's not very many role models. So even though my classes were 50-50 women and men at the medical school, there were not that many professors and people in my field who were in more senior roles who were women. So it was kind of obvious to us that, hey, there's not so many role models for us to follow. And I personally had some statements that at the time I I tried to brush off, but in light of where we are now with the Me Too movement, people would be a little taken aback to hear things like that. But I did get comments like, why don't you wear high heels while you're doing your lab work? Or women can't be scientists once they get married and have children, which, you know, would be kind of shocking. You wouldn't expect to hear that kind of thing today. Uh, But it definitely did come up. Uh, But I just felt that these are related to those individual people and not who I am. I was confident in myself. And so I just brushed it off and I moved on with my goals and where I was going. Yeah, being confident in yourself certainly helps in being able to brush off those types of comments and insults or just not being taken seriously. How do you think you got that confidence? I think a big driver of my confidence was a combination of my family support. And then when I went to college, I went to a women's college. So I attended Mount Holyoke uh, College. That's my alma mater. And through that experience, it's sort of a critical time in your development period because you have gotten your foundation in high school, but you're not quite, you know, you're not yet in the work field. And that critical period, you get the full support 
uh, by being at a women's college because everyone's encouraging you. You see women role models all around you and you're able to take leadership roles and you're able to be a leader within your class. And I did actually take a semester at another liberal arts college that was co-ed because I wanted to compare the two experiences and see if there really were differences between being at a women's college versus co-ed. And I did notice that in the classes at the co-ed university, women were less likely to raise their hands. They were less likely to speak in class, even if they might have something useful to say. And they were also not always in leadership roles within different organizations at the school. So I felt that by having the women's college experience, it really boosted me up and gave me that confidence that I was able to use as a foundation for my career. That's really interesting. There are a lot of statistics that talk about how even today, most of the leadership roles in schools are held by boys, even with girls being the top students. And it's interesting that that experience in college stuck with you. You think it was because it was a developmental? You, was it? Did it shape your brain? Did it affect the, your brain development? Well, there is research that shows that in your 20s, your brain is still developing, and especially the part of the brain that helps you to make decisions and future forecasting and that sort of thing. So I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know any research specifically on that issue about uh, women and women's colleges, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did shape in some way because of that uh, flexibility that's happening in your brain at that period in time. And that's not to say that that's the only way to go. Obviously, there's many successful women that are going to co-ed schools. But at least for me, it was something that worked for me to, I think, boost my confidence. And then family plays a big role, too. So I think if your family is supportive of what you're doing and says, you know, go for it, you can you can do this, you can do the math, and then having supportive teachers. So no matter where you're going to school, if your teachers are standing by you and saying, hey, you can you can work your way through this challenging math problem, then you're going to be much more likely to do it. And I feel that's a key thing. I still occasionally hear stories of girls who are discouraged in say math or other classes and it always makes me feel a bit saddened (laughs) because I think teachers play a really key role too. And then you also went on and got your MBA. So what drove you to do that? You already have a PhD in anatomy and neurobiology and then you also got an MBA. Yeah, so I went on a few years ago to get the MBA because I was working in industry and feeling that by being in business, I was able to impact people on a much broader scale by helping to commercialize products or coming up with product ideas that could reach larger numbers of people. And so I felt that if I went back and got the MBA, then that would give me that 360 view of business of how to 
create and run a successful corporation and understand all the pieces. Before that, I had worked in different functional areas. So I had individual pieces, but I felt like by going back and getting the MBA, I got the full scope and it gave me the additional credibility because I did encounter some people who would say, well, you, you've been working in businesses and running some ventures for a while, but you don't really have the full business experience that we'd like you to see. And that would especially come up in venture capital situations. And so I felt if I go back and get that added degree, then it just makes it really difficult for people to challenge me and say, hey, you don't have the experience because now I could say, well, I not only had the hands-on experience, but I also have this degree. And I think it harkens back to what we hear sometimes is that women need to go above and beyond. And so I think that was sort of in the back of my mind that it should be enough to have hands-on, but I'll go all the way above and beyond and get everything possible for that package so that people could say, yes, she has those business skills that we need. Yes, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about is the need to go above and beyond and how that is um, really a huge disadvantage that uh, women have to kind of prove themselves <laughs> over so much more. You know, I've been thinking a lot about it in the context of trying to get speakers for panels that are women. And I find that the women say no more often to the panels because they associate a lot of preparation with the panel. And the male speakers just associate showing up and speaking without preparing. And so they say yes. It's very rational for women to think that they have to prepare over and above for that panel, right? But this is a huge disadvantage. If we have to do over and above for everything we do, then we can do much less, right? Yes, yes. And that's really interesting to hear you to hear you say that, that you have the perspective of seeing this play out. Because I've been trying to be a lot more active as a speaker myself, and I think I mean, many people, men and women, have a fear of speaking, and you may feel as a perfectionist that you have to be absolutely perfect and, like you said, put so much time into the preparation. And so I think that's a message that we should get out to women, that you don't have to be perfect, you just have to be present, and how you are is good enough. And I think it's a combination of that self-confidence and sort of trying to play down your perfectionism a little bit because you don't have to be perfect, but if you're not there, then you lose that chance. And it's a chance not only for you, but for your company, for your colleagues and women in general to get up there and to give your opinion, which can help people by being diverse and giving new ideas. So I think it's something that we as women need to work on to make sure that we are out there and we are the ones talking. Uh, I actually joined a group that's specifically focused on women speakers and trying to encourage more women to go up on panels and to present at conferences. So I think it's a great thing and I would love to see more, more women. I just put together a panel that is an all-women's panel, and we're going to be speaking at DIA, which is one of the largest pharmaceutical conferences 
in, in the US. They have usually over some thousand attendees. And it just happened that I was able to bring together an all women panel, but I was pretty excited afterwards to say, wow, <laughs> I managed to put this together and it's a great thing. Yeah, I think it's so important. And of course, the women have to be invited in the first place. But I just had a recent experience where I had a lot of no's, a lot of declining. And I think it was just because the women were feeling overwhelmed, right? They had so much on their plate. And if you're going over and above and beyond for everything you do, uh, then you're going to constantly be overwhelmed and burning out. And I mean, here you had a PhD in anatomy and neurobiology, all this experience, and, and getting ventures off the ground, and you felt that you needed to get the MBA in order to get VC funding? Is that what you were saying? It was in that context? Oh, yeah. So the reason that I went back to get the MBA was, as you mentioned, that when I was talking to venture capitalists, I would explain to them what my background was, and meant they would talk about the the PhD that I had and and the feedback that I would keep getting as well. You have a lot of science background and we know that you have some business background, but we don't feel like it's enough business background. So that was kind of what pushed me to go back and, and get the MBA so that I would have all the pieces of a business. Although as we were talking about, I did run several ventures. And so I had to know a lot of aspects of business to be able to do those. But I just felt like, let's just cut off any, you know, questions or uh, discussion of anything that might be missing. So I was able to do it luckily, while still working because there are programs now that help people who are already out in the workforce and already in mid or senior level roles to get the MBA. But certainly it is an extra financial cost and extra time cost that you have to put into that. But I did feel that it was a really good learning experience and also good networking experience to meet different people. So, and I love, I love learning. So for me, it was a positive, but there are certainly cons to having to go back to school and, and pay that cost and so on. Right. And I've talked to um, a lot of folks on this podcast about the issues with, with venture capitalist funding and um, how men are funded at such a greater rate and than women or people of color. And, you know, I've talked to uh, VCs about this and they say it's a lot about this pattern recognition, right? <laughs> and the pattern recognition is who looks like Steve Jobs and who looks like Mark Zuckerberg, you know? Yeah. Are yeah. they in their 20s? Are they, did they drop out of college? That's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's right. Are they a man, a white man? Um, so it's very frustrating to hear that, but um, I'm glad that it was a positive experience for you to get that MBA. Um, could you talk about some of those ventures that you did or your career path leading up to starting Hughes Biopharma? Sure, sure. So the three highlights of my career really are the three ventures that I started myself. The first one was really an entrepreneur experience. So I went to a venture capital backed company in New York City and they wanted to start a new division that was focused on healthcare and biopharma. And they didn't have anyone at the company that had any experience or knowledge in those fields. So they brought me in to start 
that new division. And the service that they focused on was creating conferences, basically figuring out what the hot topics are in the market, where with a little future projection, where is the market going, and then create those conferences. And so I was successful at doing that, so successful that I started with zero revenue, and in two years I had four million in revenue that I was generating for them and was promoted to senior VP, head of the department, and managing a staff of six people. And that venture was quite successful. And then the second venture that I started is the one that we touched base on or previously, which is the Hughes Biopharma Advisors Boutique Consulting. And that I started in 2005, and I've been running now over 13 years successfully. And we help biotechs and pharmaceutical companies to get new products approved through the regulatory bodies. We help them to develop clinical messaging for some of their products. So anywhere that the business and clinical meets up, that's where we that's where we're able to add value and help them to get more therapies to patients. And then the third venture that I developed was a digital health startup, and that's Adaptat Games. And I started that company in 2013 when it was still very early in the digital health space. And we created a mobile app for kids with ADHD to help them improve their attention and planning skills. And we did it through a, what I call frictionless learning. So rather than just listening to someone give a lecture, you're learning by hands-on doing, by playing a game. The kids were able to improve their skills. And so we developed this app and launched it on the iTunes App Store in 2015 and started generating revenue right away. And we had also won a number of awards and grant funding for the company. I really learned a lot from every venture. It's been something that I love doing is innovating and finding ways to get new products or therapies out to patients so they can lead healthier lives. Now, starting a new venture is much more scary than working for another company and just collecting a paycheck. How did you deal with those feelings of risk and fear? That's a good question. I think everyone who I've heard that's contemplating starting a venture, they they always admit that it's a bit scary to think about getting walking away from a steady paycheck, which is what I did when I started my Hughes Biopharma company. I had a steady job where I was collecting my paycheck every month or week or whatever I got paid and had to walk away from that and start my own company. But what I did is plan ahead. So I think that mitigate somewhat the feelings of scariness and risk. So I spent some time taking classes and learning from other people who had successfully started businesses and learned what I needed to do to get started. So I'd actually been planning it for some period before I resigned. I had already started getting clients on the side. So I think the planning aspect is definitely important to make sure that 
you plan to, I call it plan to succeed. <laughs> you know what you're doing and you've already completed some of those steps. And then that lowers the risk and that when your risk is lowered, your anxiety hopefully will be a little bit lowered. But there is probably no way to eliminate all the anxiety. But if you weren't anxious, I think you would be less likely to succeed because it's that anxiousness and need to succeed that's going to drive you forward. So you basically were developing your new company while you still had your steady paycheck so that you were, like you said, you had planned to succeed. That must have been pretty exhausting, though, wasn't it? Yes, uh, it was. It was tiring because I was, as you say, doing two, two gigs at once. And also at the same time, my son was still relatively young. So I had, I think, an, definitely an elementary school age uh, child at home at the same time. So it was tiring, but I think I was really motivated to succeed and to launch my own company. I have had relatives who were entrepreneurs, and so seeing them succeed, seeing that history in my family was something that I kind of grew up with. And so I think that contributed to my interest in wanting to try launching my own company. And then there was also the issue that I felt that would give me more flexibility with being able to work from my home office rather than going to the full-time office when my son was at a younger age. And that's something I think that a lot of women face that decision in their career is where do they want to go and how do they want to achieve the balance? We call it work-life balance, but it's usually more like juggling than actually attaining any balance. But I think everyone who, every woman who wants to have children faces that conflict at some point. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of women who start their own businesses just so they can be the captain of their own ship. And I always recommend do it young, as, as young as you can, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's helpful to go out and get some experience in whatever area you want to have your business. But it's a lot easier to be an entrepreneur when you don't have that those high overhead bills of mortgage or those obligations of, of parenthood. But it sounds like you made it work. And, and a lot of people have also told me that it's when you become a mother that you get to be kind of like a well-oiled machine of efficiency, right? So yeah. <laughs> you're <laughs> balancing it all. <laughs> exactly. Now, looking back on your career, um, are there things that you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out that could help other women achieve their goals? Yes, there's definitely things that I've looked back at and thought, uh, why why did I not know that or not think about that at the time? So for example, one thing that I realized that you need is grit and persistence. So you really need to keep going through and around every obstacle that comes to your way. And you have to realize that you're going to get knocked down no matter how great and fabulous you are. Sometimes you're going to fail and you need to pick yourself back up and keep going. And you might not realize how critical that is to your survival. And then the other thing that I really wish that I knew when I was starting out 
is how important it is to build a community around you. So when I started out, people would offer to give me help or support or advice, and sometimes I would turn them down. And I would think to myself, I know I can do this. I don't need anyone's help. Uh, if I take help, then it will show that I'm weak or not competent enough. And so I would keep turning away invitations from people for support. But as I got further down the path to my career, I started to realize that no matter how amazing you are as an individual, you really need that community and support around you. Because one person working alone, it's difficult to make headway and it's difficult to make impact on in scale. But if you build a community of people who are who are cheering you on or who are passionate about the same things that you're passionate about, then that's when you're reaching the scale that you can have a real impact and a visible impact. And so that's what I finally started to realize. And as I realized that, I started accepting help a lot more often. And not only just accepting help, but reaching out to people and saying, could you help me or are you willing to join me in this? Because otherwise you just can't reach that scale and scope that you might want to have. I couldn't agree more. And particularly on the asking for help, I actually have that as one of the steps of my seven steps to killing it action plan that's on my website, womenkillingit.com, because I have heard that a lot. And I think for some reason, it doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, we tend to think, oh, I can do it myself. But it's become more and more clear that that's really how you have success. Yes, I think it's a very important part. And even in the startup world, that's a realization that I gradually came to, that when you're starting a company, starting it on your own is very difficult. But if you can build that community and get support behind you, then that's when you will start to become more successful. And from the organization side, I would encourage companies, universities, and other groups, when they see a woman who's doing something interesting, reach out and offer support and help because the women may reach out, but they may not. And sometimes even if you reach out, you're not being heard. So I think that you really need to have everyone working together as stakeholders. And then that's how you'll start to see more success coming from women either in startups or even at a corporation. The corporation may have a program in place like to support a woman leaders support program or something. But if they don't, then I think it's a good idea to build one because I feel like that's really where you start to see the sort of return on investment and the growth and the building. It's all happening through community. Well, I couldn't agree more. And Candace, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been such an interesting discussion. And for our listeners to check you out or follow you on the internet, where should they go? Sure. I'm on Twitter at Candace M. Hughes. So it's C-A-N-D-I-C-E-M as in Mary, H-U-G-H-E-S. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can look at me up there under Candace Hughes as well. 
Well, I thank you so much for joining us, and I hope that the lessons that you've learned can help us solve this women in STEM issue because it's something that doesn't seem to be changing quickly enough. So I'm glad to have you out there as a role model for women and interested in those fields. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to seeing your podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.